So as we transition into the time that we're going to be sharing from God's Word, I have a question for you. It's March 18th, and I want to know how many of you have done your taxes this year already? Most of you. Wow, we got some, well, this side of the room is pretty proactive. This side of the room, maybe not so much. How many of you have started, but you haven't finished? A few more? How many of you are waiting until April 15th and you'll be up till midnight? Anybody bold enough to raise your hands there? Yeah, we got a CPA down here that said the same thing. He does everybody else's taxes first, I'm sure. So, um, well, that, that question will make a little bit more sense uh, in here in just a few minutes. But um, we're in the middle of a series. We've actually just crossed over into the second half of a six-week series titled Journey to the Cross. And we have been following Jesus and his disciples following his declaration at the end of Luke chapter 9 that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He resolutely set out to go to Jerusalem, and not just to Jerusalem, but to what awaited him in Jerusalem, which was the cross that we celebrate uh, at Easter. So this series will take us right up to Easter. Next week, we'll be talking about the triumphal entry as he entered into Jerusalem, and uh, we'll, we're going to be blessed this year by a Good Friday service, so mark your calendars on Good Friday. We're going to have a, a full service that we want you to be a part of. We've been promoting it more as a come and go, but at 6.30 on Friday, um, Good Friday, we've got a service we want you to be a part of, and it will be designed for the whole family to, um, to enjoy and engage in. And then on Easter morning, we'll conclude our series as we celebrate the glory of the resurrection. So there are good things in store. Make sure that you're, you're here with us and that you're bringing people with you as you come here, that uh, we have good news and good news to share. So the question about taxes had to do with the subject of today's teaching, um, which is the story of Zacchaeus. Now maybe you've heard of Zacchaeus. I'll test you here. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a... We little man was he, that's right. So you've heard this one before, but we're going to go ahead and, and take a look at it anyway. And if you've got a bookmark in your Bible from last week, we're actually right there again. Now hopefully you've opened your Bible since last Sunday, that you didn't just take it home and set it on the counter or set it on a shelf, that you're in the Word every day. I started reading Luke chapter 1 on the first day of, of March, and so I'm Luke 18. Tomorrow I'll be Luke 19. You can read along with me. You can pick up where you, where, wherever you're starting, or if you've got your own thing, do that. But if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the seats, and you can reach under there and grab one, and we'll be on page 1630. I'm going to read you this story, the first 10 verses of Luke 19, and then we'll kind of break it down, and we'll look at some verses in particular, and we'll go from there. So if you're reading along with me in the NIV version, it sounds like this, Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and very wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, as I 
was preparing for this message, I was reminded of a time when Keaton, who's our oldest, uh, he's 12 now, but maybe when he was about three or four years old, we were reading a Bible story or Bible, uh, children's Bible story, and this story came up. And so we were reading it, and I was reading it to him, and he got that kind of far-off look that kids will get sometimes, you know, and I realized his mind had wandered. Sometimes I see it on Sunday mornings when I'm preaching among adults, too. It, it happens. Uh, we're all human, and, and something reminds you, oh, I forgot to call so-and-so, or I need to write that check and pay that bill, or whatever it is. Um, but I could see that look on his face. And so when I got done with the story, I said, so Keaton, what did you think about the story? Oh, it was great, Dad. Well, what happened? And he kind of fumbled around a little bit. He said, well, Jesus saw the little man in the tree, and then he said, let's go to Ikea. <laughs> and so he, he kind of, that's the KSV, the Keaton Sundstrom version. He had kind of morphed Zacchaeus into Ikea, and I think we'd probably been to Ikea recently and had made a mark on him, uh, but that's not exactly what happened. So let's move through this verse by verse and call out a few things that we want to make sure we don't miss from the text. God's Word is living and active. It's very rich. There are a number of things that we could pull from this and learn from this, uh, but there's a couple that I don't want us to miss today. And as I've mentioned before, we always want to be asking three questions when we come to God's Word. What does it say? What does that mean? And how does it apply? And so if you ever want to have a Bible study, you can write those three words in the leaf, of, or those three questions in the leaf of your Bible, and, and you can have a Bible study just around that. You can, you know, read it in a couple different translations. Go to BibleGateway.com or get out the Bible app on your phone, read it in a couple different translations, which will help you to understand what is the text saying? What are a couple different ways that that could be said? And then you can ask yourself, well, what does that mean? And maybe you have a study Bible, or there's some study tools that are available online that are pretty good, and you can read and see what it means. And then the most important question you can ask of God's Word is, how does that apply to me today? How am I going to be different after I've interacted with God's Word than I was before I interacted with God's Word? Because that's what it means when, when the Bible tells us that it is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can impact our lives and make us different. So in verse 1, we see that, that as we can put this in the context of a journey to Jerusalem, we know exactly where Jesus is right now. He's in Jericho. He's passing through. At the end of chapter 18, when we were talking about the blind beggar, we knew that they were on the outside of Jericho, so now they're passing through Jericho. Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem. It's a, a hard day's walk. There's a lot of terrain. There's a lot of up and down, um, but you could do it in a day if you needed to. And so that's about how close Jesus is. He's almost finished his journey to Jerusalem, and uh, he's probably got a day or two left, and then he's going to be there. So next week, as he enters Jerusalem, we'll be right in the context of that. And then in verse 2, it's interesting, we're told that, that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And when you look up that phrase, it doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, this idea of a chief tax collector. So we don't know 100% what that means, but some have speculated that maybe there were a number of tax collectors that were sort of under Zacchaeus, and, and he was leading this troop or this tribe of tax collectors. We do know some things about tax collectors, though. They were social outcasts in first century Israel because they had kind of turned traitor on their own people to work for the Roman government to tax the people and then they would pass some of those taxes on to the Roman government but the Roman government was real you know vague on how much was needed to be collected from a certain region and so the tax collectors could collect more than was needed saying well Rome will thump you if you don't give us the taxes and then they'd pass on what they had to and keep the rest and so that may be very well why we're told that he's very wealthy he was a chief tax collector. He had other tax collectors under him, maybe. And um, 
yet he wasn't, money hadn't been the root of all his, or the source of all his satisfaction because he really wanted to see Jesus, didn't he? And I wonder, as I, as I read through that, I wonder, you know, was, did he find that his life was devoid of meaning and purpose despite his immense wealth? And so when Jesus is coming to town and Jesus is making his way, he just had this overwhelming need to see him. And it reminded me that, that there's something true about every single one of us in this room, that there is a God-shaped hole that we are born with. And it's not a money-shaped hole, and it's not a church-shaped hole, and it's not a religion-shaped hole, and it's not an anything else shaped hole. It is a Jesus-shaped hole. And you can try to cram anything else that you can find into it, and it will not fit, and it will not fill it. But Jesus comes into Zacchaeus's life in this story, and he radically changes Zacchaeus's life. He radically alters his before and his after, because Zacchaeus recognized that something was missing. And then in verse 4, we see how badly he wanted to see Jesus. We're told that he was running on ahead. And I have to wonder if maybe he tried to poke through the crowd a time or two, and being a social outcast, people weren't like, oh, hey, Zacchaeus, come on in, we'll make room for you. They were, they were blocking him out. So he runs ahead and he climbs up a tree. And we know that, that men in first century Israel did not run. It was a very undignified thing to do. We know this from the story of the prodigal son where it says that the father ran out to meet him. Because they wore long robes. And if you've ever tried to run in a long robe, it it's requires some, some modifications. You've got to gird up your loins, if you've ever heard that. You've got to gird that up, and that's the only way you can run. Otherwise, you're going to do a face plant. So Zacchaeus runs ahead, very undignified. He climbs up a tree. He, he's calling attention to his lack of stature. But we also see in this a childlike enthusiasm among Zacchaeus, that he just, he wasn't going, like Bartimaeus last week, he was not going to be blocked out. He was not going to be held back. He was not going to be silenced. He was going to see Jesus one way or another. So he runs ahead, he climbs up the tree, and he's able to see Jesus approaching. And he finds out something very, very interesting, doesn't he? He finds out that when he started seeking Jesus, Jesus was already seeking him. And the same is true for every single person in this room, and it's true for every single person that you're going to meet this week or next week or through the rest of your life. You will never look into the eyes of a human being that God does not love, because God loves every single person. He's crazy about him. And Zacchaeus finds out that when you start seeking Jesus, you'll find out he was already seeking you. And I remember that that was true in my life, that I thought, you know, I was kind of good on my own. I was, did more good than bad. I was morally flexible at times, but I still, you know, I had good intentions, right, like many of us, and, and I hadn't really sought Jesus. I had sought to do enough to be okay with God. And when I learned about a relationship with Jesus Christ, that the Savior died on a cross in order that he might be Lord of our lives and lead us into his kingdom, that we would live there now, not just go there when we die, but that we can live in the kingdom of God here and now, I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to seek Jesus. And as soon as I did, I found he'd been seeking me all along. He'd been there all along. He was right there when I came to him. And so it's interesting then when we read verse 5, that when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus invites himself into somebody's house. All the other times we see him in homes, we see him fellowshipping with people. We see him sharing meals with people, which should be a clue to us that we ought to be doing the same thing, right? We'll get to that. But we see Jesus being invited. Here is a time when he invites himself to somebody's home. He invites himself to Zacchaeus's home. 
And it might remind you of Revelation 3.20, a pretty popular verse where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anybody opens the door, I will come in, and I will share a meal with them, and we will have fellowship together. And I, I, I wonder if that's not part of the equation here as well. But I see such an intensity, and I see such a purpose in Jesus' language. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, come on down for a second. I'd like to visit with you, and maybe if that conversation goes okay and we have a decent rapport... I would like to have a meal with you. That's not at all what Jesus says. He's not bashful or shy or anything. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, for I must go to your house today. I must stay at your house today. And it reminded me that Jesus is on a journey. He's on a mission. It has to be today because he's on his journey to Jerusalem, and it can't be tomorrow, and it can't be the next day, that there was a sense of purpose and a sense of mission that Jesus was on, and he had a teachable moment that he wanted to, to, to instruct the people on, and he wanted to instruct his disciples on. And this was the perfect opportunity, the perfect time for that to happen. So when he says to Zacchaeus, come down, I must stay at your house today, I have to wonder, is he inviting himself to your house today as well? Is he standing at the door and is he knocking at the door of your heart maybe? Maybe for the first time, I don't know if you're a guest here today or if, if somebody invited you to church and you're here for the first time or the first time in a long time, Jesus might be knocking at the door of your, of your heart and saying, could we do life together for a little while? Sometimes we get this idea that God just wants to use us. God just wants to use us. And I believe God does want to use our lives for his glory, but he wants to do life with us too. He wants to be in the, the, the day in, day out, moment by moment experience of life. He wants to be a part of that. And we see that, that maybe he's knocking on the door and saying, could you let me back in? Could you let me back into your life? Maybe you've been doing the, the outward motions that go along with being a Christian and you've been coming to church and you've been going to Bible study, but, but you haven't felt that closeness. And maybe God's knocking at the door of your heart today saying, would you let me back in? Could we do life together? Could we experience life together? And I'll, I'll set your mind at ease. You don't have to clean up first before you open the door of your heart, you open the door of your life. You don't have to leave him waiting on the doorstep while you tidy up. He'd love to come in. He'll grab a mop. He'll grab a brush. He'll, he'll grab a dust rag, and he will help you clean up your life. He will help you make room for him. He will help your life grow to accommodate him. I've experienced it firsthand. Verse 7 is where we get the title for today's message. All the people, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, they saw this. They began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest with a sinner, with a sinner. And the title of the message today is Eats with Sinners because Jesus, our Savior, is the kind of Savior that doesn't just stay up at the higher, uh, the higher status people of society. He came down and he came down from heaven and he came into earth and he got dirty and he got muddy and he mixed and mingled with the least of these and even with sinners. And I had to notice the contrast between verse 43 of chapter 18, which we closed with last week, how, how all the people went praising God because they had just seen this miracle. Okay, that wasn't a week ago. That was in our narrative. That was a few minutes ago. Because we're told he was entering Jerusalem as he, as he brought sight to Bartimaeus. And that everyone was praising him and praising God for this miracle that they had just seen. He has this interaction with Zacchaeus. And seven verses into it, all the people, not just a few, Okay, it doesn't say that there was like this little contingent, you know, people that find something to complain about 
but just about everything, right? Free dinner, well, you know, there's something to complain about. No, this was all the people. This wasn't just a few. This was everybody. All the people began to mutter, and that's a, that's a word that means more than just mutter. It means grumble. It means groan. It means, it means complain against. All the people began to mutter, saying, he, Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a sinner. It's amazing how quickly we can turn, isn't it? How quickly our luck turns, how quickly our expectations turn, how quickly something doesn't go the way we wanted it to, and we go from singing praises to muttering, grumbling, and complaining. And there's a perfect parallel in the people of Israel. If you've ever read the Exodus, you see their front row seats to the miracles of God and the power of God as he brings the greatest nation on earth at the time to its knees and leads the people out with all of their wealth. And it's not a month later, they are grumbling and complaining, and only we had meat, and what are we going to eat, and you brought us out here to kill us. And it's amazing how quickly we turn. And they lost out on the promised land for a whole generation. Forty years they had to spend in the desert, walking around in circles until that generation had passed away. And then they could move into the promised land. So we have to guard our hearts. We have to make sure that we don't grumble and mutter and complain as we see the people here. You know, their assumption wasn't that far off base. Their assumption was that if you hang around with sinners, you're going to become a sinner. If you hang around with the ungodly, you're going to become ungodly yourself. And there's some scripture that would lean uh, or support this idea. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says that bad company corrupts good character, right? Or maybe you've heard some of the Proverbs where it says, avoid a hot-tempered man or you will suffer for it. Be with the wise to become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. This is all scripture, so it's all good guideposts for our living, but I think it had become so much more about exclusivism. It becomes so much more about keeping certain people out and letting certain people in and making sure that that scoundrel Zacchaeus knew that he was not accepted. It was very important to the masses. And we have to be careful because we can, we can find ourselves in this as well. Now, I do think that there's two things we see here. First, the power of Jesus that is evident throughout the Gospels is he was able to go up to lepers and heal them and cleanse them and not contract leprosy himself. He was able to go up to the unclean and speak healing into their lives and not take on their uncleanliness. So there was a power that Jesus had that he was able to do this. He was able to bring sinners to repentance. So just merely associating with them was not going to corrupt his character. All right? But we also see that there is some wisdom in this. Okay? If you're an alcoholic and that's a part of your, your past, you probably don't need to have a bar ministry. Okay? So there's wisdom, but it doesn't mean carte blanche exclusion of all people who might be classified as sinners because that's every person in the room. Right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we are redeemed by Jesus, then we are righteous in God's sight, and we have been justified from our sins, and we are set on a path towards holiness in our pursuit of him. But if we just completely cut out anybody who's not in that category from our lives, then very quickly we'll find that we're just in a bunch of little holy huddles, and we get together, and we never interact with anybody who's not redeemed. And we have been told to go, and as we go, to make disciples, to bring people into the family of God, to bring in people into this family of families. And so that is part of our, our marching orders as well. So we have to be wise in that, but we can't just carte blanche 
push aside anybody who doesn't do it exactly the way that we do it and doesn't look exactly the way that we look. We are encouraged and, in fact, commanded to be in cross-cultural ministry, cross-economic ministry, cross-lifestyle ministry that we can go and we can interact with people and make an invitation and try to find common ground with them. And we see Jesus doing that with a group of people that he would have had no access to if he'd have just gone into the synagogue leader's home or into the Pharisee's home. He would never have interacted with these people that, that Zacchaeus had access to. And so if you're newer to church or you're newer to this, don't feel like you have to completely leave behind every person that you've ever interacted with. Those are people you have access to and you can take Jesus to just the way that Zacchaeus does here. And these are opportunities that we have. So don't miss the point. Jesus ate with sinners. My question is, do you? Do you? Do you meet with regularly or eat with or share a meal with? And maybe it only happens around the holidays with your family, but do you eat with people that you would label as sinners, right? Because they're not all saved. They're not all, they don't, they, that's a, those are golden opportunities for us to be, to be Jesus to those people. Jesus ate with sinners, and my question is, do you? In fact, there's a, one of my favorite comic strips is, uh, it's a little thing, I'd never seen it before, the miracle of Facebook um, landed on the earth, and uh, it's, it's this Coffee with Jesus. And I don't know if you can read that. It's just a little blurry on the screen. But the first guy here, he says, my stance on it is this, Jesus. Love the sinner, hate the sin. How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have said that? I used to say this all the time. Jesus says, I'll do you one better, Carl. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. And then Carl doesn't have a lot to say, suddenly. So Jesus concludes, I guess you have some work to do. And I remember when I saw that, I had said, love the sinner, hate the sin, so many times it was ridiculous. And I had been so focused on hating all of your sins that I didn't have any time to hate my own sin. And God really spoke to me through this little four-panel cartoon and helped me to see that, that Christianity is as much about the me next to me as it is anything else. And that I have access to people, and I have access to circles, and I have access to people that God has placed in my path. And they don't need me to, to come at them with an approach that says, well, I love you, but I hate your sin. We can come with a humility that says, I'm going to love you on behalf of Jesus, and i got enough sins to hate. I'll just hate my own. And that, I believe, is in this story as well, as Jesus goes and eats with sinners. And so if you want a homework assignment this week, your homework assignment is to find somebody. Don't say, hey, I need to find a sinner and take him to lunch. That's not what we're talking about, but you've probably got somebody that the Holy Spirit has already tapped on your shoulder and whispered in your ear and said, there's somebody that you could go to, go to lunch with, there's somebody you could go have a cup of coffee with, and it might be a little uncomfortable at first, but just have a conversation, ask them to tell you their story. Say, what's your story? Tell me your story, I want to get to know you a little bit better. And as they do, jot down in mental notes some common ground that you have. And when they're done, don't interrupt, but when they're done... Hey, when you mentioned this, that reminded me of this thing in my life. And suddenly you're having a conversation and you're sharing. And you're sharing your story and you're going to have an opportunity to share God's story that he's writing in your life with them. And maybe you guys can, can link up. and Maybe they can be here next week or Easter Sunday. And that, to me, is what this is all about. And I, I find it really interesting. And it, this is a quick, pretty quick conversion because in verse 8, as these people are muttering and grumbling, Zacchaeus feels like, man, I've got to do something about this. They're muttering. They're grumbling. So he stands up and he says, look, Lord, he's already addressing Jesus as Lord. A lot of people in this setting would have addressed Jesus as teacher, right? We see that over and over in the Gospels. But Zacchaeus has already said, no, this is not just a teacher. This is my Lord. He says, look, Lord, 
Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody from anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's a lot of money probably. Half of his wealth, he was very wealthy, half of his wealth is going immediately to the poor, and the other half is probably going to be used to pay back anybody that he's cheated. And so what we see here is he makes a public profession of his faith. He makes a public profession of his faith in Jesus Christ, that he has made Jesus Lord of his life. And there's power in that anytime we do that. That's why I love baptisms. I love baptisms because people stand up in front of their church family. They stand up in front of people maybe that they've never met. And they go on record. And they say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And I'm committing my life to him. I love baptisms. So I grew up in a United Methodist church. And I was baptized as a two or three year old. I was a participant. But I have no memory of it. Nobody asked me if I wanted to do it. I'm glad they did. But then when I was about 19, I became a believer in Jesus Christ and began a personal relationship with him. And I kept hearing about baptism. And I finally asked my pastor, I was like, is that something I should do? And he said, oh, yes, Mark, it's something you should do. You should go on record. You should make a public profession of your faith. You should give God glory for what he's done in your life. So when I was 23 years old, I was baptized in front of 500 people. I knew about eight of them, maybe, maybe 10 or 12. And I remember that place going nuts as I came up out of the water and the glory God got from people I had never met because I was willing to make a public profession of, of my faith. So if you've never been baptized or if you've only been baptized when you weren't necessarily making a choice or choosing to do that but your parents did it for you, God bless them. That was wonderful. And I'm not saying anything against that but I'm saying maybe, maybe God's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, maybe you ought to go on record. Maybe you ought to make it public. Maybe you ought to give God glory for the, what he's done in your life. Now for Zacchaeus, because money was kind of his thing, we see that there's a radical generosity that begins. And when I say radical, I'm not saying it like a skater language, like radical, dude. I'm saying it like radical to the root. That's why we call them radishes, right? Because that, that, that root word there is to do with the root. So to the core of who he is, he becomes a radically generous person. And it's it's the evidence for him of salvation. It's the evidence for him. That's not going to be the case for everybody. So if you're new here and this is your first time, I'm not saying that if you become a Christian, you've got to give half of all your money to the poor and pay everybody back fourfold. That's what it was for Zacchaeus. That was the evidence of his repentance, of his conversion, of his transformation, of this turning. When we talk about, when we talk about um, repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, and it means that you're going in a certain direction and you come to a complete stop and you turn 180 degrees, and you move in the other direction. That is repentance. That is a turning from what you were pursuing. So for Zacchaeus, as a tax collector, he's turning from a life of exploitation and a life of, of relentless pursuit of more to move in a different direction. And for him, repentance involved giving money away, and it involved paying back those that he had wronged. And I think that's powerful, and we see Jesus speaking into that, but the bottom line here, the bottom line today is that life-saving faith is life-changing faith. Life-saving faith is life-changing faith. So if there's a, a, if there's a testimony that says, well, I was going in this direction and I met Jesus and I kept going in this direction, that's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're talking about a life-saving faith, eternal, eternally saving faith is life-changing faith. It involves a change. How many of you were in the Christian music scene in the late 90s when Stephen Curtis Chapman was really big and he had this song called What About the Change? You remember that song or is it just me? I see one person nodding. Okay, there's a few more hands. 
Well, the song was all about, it's not just about the bumper stickers or the Christian trinkets or the art you put on your wall. It's about the change. The power of a transformed life is, is incalculable because everybody sees it. There's a difference that people can see. And so Zacchaeus' radical generosity and his public profession become the change that people can see to know that it's real. And Jesus speaks to this and he says, today salvation has come to this house, this house where I'm going to go and eat with sinners. Salvation has come to that house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Salvation has come. Now, if you read all of Luke 18, you know when we looked at the rich young slave, he went away sad. And Jesus Jesus taught on that, that that it was too much for him to give what he had to the poor, so he left because he had great wealth. The contrast between the rich young slave and Zacchaeus is drastic, isn't it? Zacchaeus doesn't go away sad, does he? He goes away happy. He goes away saved. He goes away in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the contrast is remarkable, and it proves When Jesus continues that teaching, he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? And and he said, I tell you the truth, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to to come into the heaven. Well, here's an example, not, not two pages later, of a rich person coming into the kingdom of God. So it just, it does show that even the rich can be saved. And it shows us very clearly in verse 10 what Jesus was all about. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save me when I was lost. He came to seek and to save you when you were lost. He came to seek and save every single person in this room and every single person that's not in this room. And let me tell you, there are so many more people that are not in this room, that are not in a room like this right now than there are in a room like this today. That we have work to do. That Jesus' mission is not completed. He did his part. Now we have to do our part. So his job description he just gave us was to seek and save the lost. That was his purpose. That was his mission. You want to know what your job description is? Your job description is to join him in his ministry of reconciling the world to God. That's your job description. He'll never quit. He never did quit. He didn't quit on the way to the cross. He didn't quit on the cross. Even when he was nailed to a cross, beaten beyond recognition, he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And then he came up from the grave and he came back from the dead and he resurrected. He commissioned his people. At the end of each gospel, he commissioned his followers. In the beginning of the book of Acts, he commissions the people to go and to be his witnesses and to tell his story and to tell what you have seen and heard. Because there are so many people out there who are not in here. We started this whole series with a message about the great banquet and how empty seats and spirit-filled churches break God's heart. And we put out some more chairs, and you filled a good number of them, but there's plenty of room left. You can keep inviting. You can keep bringing people with you. You can keep inviting people to come and to hear. So your job description, if you want to know, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm just going to read this. You can turn to page 1799 or you can open up 2 Corinthians chapter 5 if you want and read along. But verse 16 through 21 kind of gives us our job description as the people of God. He says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Just like Zacchaeus was a new creation. 
The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's your job description. Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the vision that God has for your life, that you would join him and join other people who have joined him in redeeming the world and reconciling the world to himself. Verse 16, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's one of the things on your job description now. If, you, if your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to regard no one from a worldly point of view. In verse 17, to be a new creation, to join God in this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors. That's your title. And verse 20 also says that we need to be reconciled to God so that we can reconcile others to God. And finally, verse 21, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why your witness matters. That's why the things that you do matter. You're no longer earning God's favor through some religious system that says, do this, try harder, do this, don't do that, do this, do that, do this, do that. It's now about our witness. It's about becoming the righteousness of God so that when we go and usher the invitation and we invite somebody to be a part of what God is doing in this world, that we have a solid witness to back that up. So it all works together and we see it all come to fruition in the miracle of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could join him wholeheartedly in his mission in the world. So as we close today, I'd invite you to to apply. We've looked at what the text says. We've talked about some things that it means. I've given you some ideas of how it might apply to your life personally, but I want to encourage you to take a minute. The singing boys are going to come back up. They're going to close us in a choral benediction. I want you to take a moment as they do that to ask God, what do you want me to do as a result of this? Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this story and for the radical transformation that we see in Zacchaeus. We thank you that salvation came to that house. That he showed that no matter how far you are from God, no matter how outcast you are from society, that you can come into the family of God. That that there would be room in God's house for every single person. Help us, Lord, to be your ambassadors. Help us, Lord, to take up the marching orders to invite others into that relationship which you invite each of us to have with your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen.